Spike and Joe, it is Thursday, the 18th, if you're listening to this as it's released, and uh, Spike is still in his temporary abode using a a neighbor's (laughs) Wi-Fi. Very well done. Yeah, well, that was touch and go this morning, but let's not get into that. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, life's funny. The the being in the abode part or the Wi-Fi part? The being in the abode part, yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I get a text from one of our insurance adjusters just to let you know you're not your your, your funding ends tomorrow, and I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> you know what? And I had to hunt down three different adjusters and make a half dozen phone calls to remind them of the letter I received over a month ago saying we were covered through July 17th. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And and because they're they have to pay for the uh, loss of abode during the repairs to your house. Yeah, part of part of our insurance coverage that we've been paying into for thirty years and never drawn a dime from, so I don't feel guilty about getting anything I can out of them. No, but there's a tinge of guilt in you even having to say that. It's like uh, I got to defend it. Yeah, yeah, it's a little defensive. Like screw them. They're an insurance. See, Joe, I used polite language. <laughs> they're an insurance. Well, that's a, that's a that's a gray area word, Bob. <laughs> no, they're they're an insurance company. So when stuff goes wrong. Like when my plane was stolen, I felt bad for the insurance company. Why did I feel bad for the insurance company? I had been paying them for years. Colton Harris Moore grabbed my plane and crashed it. This was, you know, it's not yeah. my fault. That's what I paid for. No, no, no. And yet I felt guilty. So, you know, yeah, I do too a bit. Yeah, I know. Try well, to you just it. you have to remember too when your job title is adjuster there has to be a little flexibility so you got to tell them to adjust it and give you some more time john alexander pointed something out to me about insurance adjusters by the way he said they never adjust upwards Mm, i've 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 won every battle i've entered into in this round i should talk to sean that's good but i mean uh, in other words you've won your battle to get what you were due not more. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, yeah. You had to fight to get what you were doing. Yeah. <clears throat> it's mean, like drowning. You have to just fight your way to the surface. I know? had to actually hire a lawyer to threaten the insurance adjuster when my plane uh, got crashed. And then they got to have to decide, is it going to cost us more to go to court with him or just to say, okay, we'll give you a little more? Yeah. It was more yeah. complex it, than that, actually. Uh, but that is usually... I mean, that's what companies decide. They don't, they don't have a yeah. heart. They just decide what's the cheapest way out. Yeah. Um, but in my case, what had happened with the airplane was the adjuster was stringing it out and getting low bids. And like because the uh, economic crisis was happening, it was 2008. It was November 2008. Yeah. And all of these aviation repair shops were basically ready to go out of business. So he found repair shops 
that would do it for cost just to keep their employees. And, uh, and, and anyway, he come up with a really low bid and said my plane was repairable when it wouldn't be the same plane. A plane that has crashed isn't the same airplane. Never. And it it doesn't retain its value. So, and it was basically totaled by by the contract, but I didn't know how to read the contract. And they also violated a bunch of state laws by not settling it within a certain period of time. And they ran past some deadlines, but they were supposed to let me know stuff. So um, when I finally went to an attorney, he said, so what do you want? He said, well, I just want what I paid for. I just want, you know, the value of, of the policy on the plane. He goes, you sure? You don't want any more than that? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> oh, no pain and, and suffering. Lawyers yeah. adjust things upwards, you see. <laughs> they say, you dragged this out for months. You know, he's lost the use of his plane. They, they would do all of that stuff. And, um, and I said, no, I just want the thing. And so he, he basically said, well, if I get involved then the insurance company's lawyers will get involved. So he said, let me just write you a letter to give to the adjuster about which state statutes in insurance law they're in violation of because they've dragged this out and demand payment within 48 hours. And so he I wrote- got it done, huh? Yeah, and I put it in an email and clicked send and I'm not embarrassed to say this, but I'm I'm mildly ashamed, I guess. But do you know what I did right after that? I, I can't say because we're trying to keep us a clean podcast. Okay. I took a walk with a friend and I shut off my phone. So they couldn't contact to you. To be unavailable. Yes. Have you ever yeah, have you ever smart. made yourself unavailable when you were ticked at somebody just just to be unavailable? I'm not as strategic, but I got to say, you're the master of availability and unavailability. <laughs> you, you really are. I mean, I, I can't count how many times you said to me, Joe, I got something. Get back to me. And then you might not be available or not. And you've got me so curious about what it's going to be. I'm going to hunt you down. And then yeah. it was usually something you wanted me to do. And I said, why did I work so hard to get it back? Because you yeah. make it sound very compelling. You're good at that. Are you talking about when we were working together Oh yeah, for pay? I'm talking yeah. years ago. And it's not a bad thing. It's a craft. It's an art. It's like it's like leaving a tease on a, on a message like we do on the radio. You know, you, you've got my, my wheels turning about what could he what could he want this sounds really compelling well remember we were in the media and what you just described was actually our job i know our job was to tease people get them interested and hold on to them for a period of time yep in podcasting we have a lot more freedom and of course because the money isn't you know we're not uh, a whole bunch of mattress companies and cable TV companies are not depending on our ratings. We can like just explore our human psyche and you know and do it for the pure love of it. But when your your job is advertising, you are essentially setting a trap for people's time and holding them, which is a good lead-in, by the way. To what's actually going on in our world today with the internet with facebook with twitter 
with the lamestream media that has has to compete with these things, with the um, what I call the propaganda media, left and right, that has to also compete. And remember that their job is to dramatize things and hold your interest. Right. Before we before we get into that, I do yeah. want to ask one Colton Harris more question. Sure. Is, is the uh, is that like story ever going to be told or the movie going to come out? Because right now would be a great for a feel good time to the good old days where all we had was like an economic collapse and a kid stealing planes. I mean, that this would be a good time for that story to come yeah. out. Yeah, I'm not sure it'll ever be a feel good movie for me. Oh, I, I know it won't be. I mean, it's, it's better than a COVID Christmas on Hallmark. I yeah. Think. yeah. Um, so, uh, by the way, Sony Pictures, which is, I believe Disney and Sony are, the, are one and the same now. Uh, but anyway, they have the rights to it and they keep renewing the rights. The rights were about to expire maybe five or six months ago. And my son was interested in pursuing the project because no one has pursued it yet. And uh, he inquired with the author of the book, The Barefoot Bandit, Bob Friel, in, on Orcas Island. It's a great book, by the way. He wrote the definitive book about this. And um, the rights were just renewed. So it's locked up as a movie idea. There have been two books. But so far, there's been no real impetus to make the movie. Uh, Colton Harris Moore is now... 29 approaching 30 years old um wow and he's out he's out i believe that bob friel is friendly with him and uh, tells me that he's yeah hey look the huge success is he's keeping himself on the right side of 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 the law and good for him yeah, yeah. and just to have that happen is a, is a wonderful thing i'm happy for him uh, one of these days, I mean, he would talk to us. Um, I just sort of made a decision a long time ago not to do that. Partially because he got famous. Again, this all ties into modern media. He got famous as this Facebook guy with 30,000 followers encouraging him to run and escape from the police. So... You know, and that's a form of mar- narcissism, I believe. That, uh, and I don't say narcissism like he's a narcissist. There's an evil, you know, like burn her. She's a witch. Um, because I have a bunch of narcissism, and I'm not going to speak for you guys. But it's my you theory too. that most entertainers, <laughs> you know, have a little like a little touch of the narcissist flu. And so, uh, anyway, I didn't want to encourage him by. You know, making it a like, oh, you're out of prison now. We, you know, we can network because, you know, I just felt like he should do it on his own. Does that make sense? Do you do you know what he is? He doing something he likes? Obviously, he's probably not in the aviation industry. Uh, it's a good question. I did not dig. I didn't ask Bob, um, but um, I know that he was trying to raise money to get flight lessons. And he tried to do it on social media, and the FBI shut him down, or Department of Justice shut him down, because he can't profit from that experience. Ever, or for a amount of time? Oh, I think ever, yeah. 
Okay. Well, and he, he probably owes a lot of people money. I mean, yours wasn't the only plane he wrecked. So if he started making money, he's going to have to give it to somebody, not to himself. Well, uh, ironically, Sony Pictures or Disney or whoever has the rights right now has, I believe, paid everybody off. Because I, uh, I had about uh, $50,000 of um, unrecovered expenses when all of this went down. And it's really funny because Sean Alexander, our buddy, said to me, you need to document those expenses and you need to submit them to the San Juan uh, Police Department, San Juan Sheriff. I said, oh, nothing will ever happen. He said, he said at some point, if there's a movie, someone's going to have to pay and Colton can't get the money. So anyway, Sean told me to just like write stuff down and literally the cost of buying the other plane, the difference in cost, replacing avionics that I didn't have, um, the time I spent without a plane, I added up all the, the times I flew on Kenmore Air. I mean, literally, he was like, no, 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 be real thorough. And I was like, really? Are they gonna, do they wanna see these receipts? He goes, you use your integrity and be thorough. He said, they're never going to ask you for the receipts. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, what's going to happen is Colton Harris Moore is going to stand up in court someday. And they're going to have already negotiated a deal for him. And they're going to say, all right, and restitution. And here are the restitution. And he's going to have a folder with all the restitution in it. And his attorney's going to say, yep, we take care of that. No problem. And then it's done. And so I think some of these checks started coming in when we were on KJR, because I'm sure I mentioned it. The first check, $25. That was to replace the key he found to start the plane. <laughs> Basically it, yeah. <laughs> anyway, if the cup holder, over yeah, the five covers. or six years, because the movie company had the rights and they paid for the rights... Uh, but the, the the pay that they negotiated went to, I guess, the state or the sheriff's office or whoever. I think it was Friday Harbor that was handling all of this stuff. So eventually, I I did get paid back. And uh, do, you, do you ever think about who would be you in the movie? It's got you got the first plane. You're gonna you got to have at least a walk on part you know, there. Or honest to God, at one point George Clooney was attached to the script, but not as me as Bob Friel. Mm. They'd uh, get some. Yeah, I, I see. Yeah. I see. It was a Tim Robbins. A Tim Robbins. Actually, yeah. that would be awesome because uh, yeah. yeah, I like that. He, but you know, hey, uh, I don't know if there'll ever be a movie out. I kind of hope there is. It's an interesting story. I think it's a you know it's too good of a true story not to get the movie treatment at some point because. Right. Uh, they're, they're, there's only so many uh, original ideas in Hollywood. And right now, they're not making movies anyway. So right. they delayed the Oscars, uh, the one, because they don't have any movies, and two, because they don't want to get a bunch of people in a room. So right. there won't be any Oscars until April of 21. They should just hold the Oscars at the Republican convention. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a crowd that's going to get along great. This side of the room, Meryl Streep <laughs> and her friends. And that side of the room... Yeah. <laughs> Americans. Well, Meryl Streep wouldn't be there. They'd just all be on TV screens. <laughs> True. It'd be funny. All right. So uh, anyway, bringing it all back to today, Colton Harris Moore was one of those first phenomenon on Facebook.
and uh, there have been more, but but he was kind of a pioneer. Huge following, lawlessness. And a little touch of Robin Hood, because he one thing he did that really won a lot of people over is he would anonymously leave money at like uh, humane shelters yes. and stuff. So people yep. go, oh, what a nice guy. You know, he's, he's robbing from the rich and leaving it for the dogs and cats. There's a story in Bob's book, which I'll tell roughly, uh, that's pretty charming, too, is that Colton Harris Moore, when he was in the Bahamas, he, you know, He's, being, he's a hunted man, 17-year-old or 18 by that time. And he goes into a bar and sits there and starts chatting up a girl. And this cute girl sitting there chatting with this, you know, 18-year-old guy. And they're talking. And um, at some point, she goes, hey, are you him? The barefoot bandit? And I think he, like, shows her his bare feet and goes, yep, that's me. I mean, he's trying to score on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they started chasing him and he took off and he, you know, stole a dinghy. And um, it ended up with him threatening suicide with a gun to his head and his laptop, which he was going to drop in the water so there'd be no evidence. Wow. I know. It was, it, oh, the book is good. The Barefoot Bandit by Bob Friel. If you want to know about it. And I'm in there a bunch. And, and he'll be George Clooney in the movie, everybody remember. Well. George Clooney. Yeah, he wanted George Clooney. There's also, <laughs> yeah. there's also a twist to this story which has never really been told. But you guys know my friend Chuck Opperman, the pilot. Mm-hmm. And Chuck was involved. And I'll let uh, Chuck tell the story sometime if he wants to. Because Chuck also had a key to my plane. And, um, you know, there were... At the time, before they knew about Colton Harris Moore, like the insurance adjuster would say things to me like, usually it's somebody you know. Who do you know? <laughs> like lots of nice people. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I work with Spike O'Neill. This is a pretty, yeah. dope, it's a pretty easy case. But anyway, there's a, there's a weird twist involving uh, Chuck as well, which would be in the movie, and I believe it's in the book too. Uh, okay, so uh, back to the present I got a bone to pick with political correctness. And part of why I want to bring it up to you guys is I'm really curious if you'll be with me on this one. And, um, and I'm pretty sure what I'm telling you now is going to end up being a story in a couple of days. It's not as of yet. Okay. A famous brand is going to be What's the word? Uh, ghosted? Um, erased. Cancel culture. The cancel culture. It's going to be canceled. Yeah. You probably know which brand I'm talking about. Well, there's, there's several to choose from as of this afternoon. Okay. This story is burning like an Australian bushfire. Okay. Put it out I've there. heard. Well, I've heard of Aunt Jemima, for one, and then Uncle Ben. Both of them uh, are Uncle ben, going yeah. away. Famous Uncle Ben, too. Yeah. The rice mm-hmm. and the syrup. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, okay. Apparently, uh, Aunt Jemima came from a depiction of a, a, a racist depiction of a mammy, which would have been a slave woman who cooked for the white plantation family. Is that correct? That's the, that's the branding image that they picked for that product. Yes. yes. You know the story of the woman who was, whose company uh, they bought? 
Well, I, I know I know a little bit, but it's very complex because there were lots of women. Um, I, I know this. In 1890, a former slave named Nancy Green yes. was hired to be the spokesperson for Aunt Jemima. At that well, time, Nancy Green started, well, she started a company that was bought. I mean, the, her, her recipe for, um, for pancake mix right. was bought by General Mills. Yes, and she and he wasn't. And General Mills was not a Confederate general. There is no statue. <laughs> just to be clear, General Mills, and just and, to be clear, General Lee Mills, and there was no um, pancake uh, batter. I mean, there was no syrup at the time. It was just pancake exactly. batter. Okay, right. Uh, she had been born into slavery in 1834 in Kentucky. In nine in 1889, the creators of Aunt Jemima, Charles Rutt and Charles Underwood, sold the company to R.T. Davis, who soon found Nancy Green in Chicago. The previous owners had already agreed upon her look of a bandana and an apron. Now, so far, to me, this sounds like affirmative action, not racism. Well, it sounds like cultural appropriation, and it sounds like the softening of an unpleasant history, wrapping it into a warm and fuzzy, presenting it in an image of, of endearment, if you will. If I'm Nancy I mean, Green, I, I, it's a gig, and they're paying me, and they're giving me a brand. Like, what are they doing to me that's negative? Um, I think they're. I think they're making the image of the black woman taking care of the white family more palatable. Um, I, I, when was it ever not palatable? I mean, today, if you hire someone to take care of your family, it really doesn't matter. Like, how is it about race? Back then, we had slaves. Yes, right. Eighteen thirty-four. But anyway, so I'm following this, and I, what I'm saying is. I see this as not the biggest number one problem when strangling and murdering people is happening. <laughs> yes, I, I give you that. Are you following? That's my pre- that's my basic premise. So I'm going to give that away. Spoiler. I'll, I'll alert. give you that one. That, that no, yeah. no, that's a good. That's a card. Anyway, so, the board. so she showed up at the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, and many people were interested in the Aunt Jemima exhibit because, and again, I don't think it has much to do with race. People love pancakes. And this particular recipe was an awesome recipe. And if it came, and it didn't, but if it came from a slave mammy who's now freed and, you know, serving pancakes to thousands of people, again, we have worse problems. Bill Cosby's the worst problem. I'm not sure how yes. this is such a, 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 anyway, so I followed the story and I was like, okay, so far I don't see anything really weird. Uh, and after Nancy Green, by the way, they got another spokesperson, Anna Robinson, and uh, they changed her to a painted portrait on the packaging. Then it, it's almost like um, the Dalai Lama, you know how they keep grooming new young Dalai Lamas and yes, the, the best kid gets to be the next Dalai Lama? Mm-hmm. So Chicago blues singer and actress Edith Wilson became the first Aunt Jemima to appear in television commercials. Now, Joe, you're from the South, so you're, you're going to carry a lot of weight here. But 
Does any of this sound like oppression to you? Well, first of all, I would think you would be thrilled to have your number one competitor put out of business. I mean, how much maple syrup has Aunt Jemima sold, and how much have you sold? This <laughs> is like nice this misdirect. Is like, Redirect well, there. I mean, I love well, Uncle Bob, you should well, be on the press with not answering the question. This that is way. this is well. I'll get to that part. Yeah. But this is like if all of a sudden Microsoft was told Apple's going out of business. Yeah. I mean, you have a major obstacle to you <clears> building a maple syrup empire is is going. Okay, by the so wayside. here's the thing. By the way. People think that Aunt Jemima's is maple syrup. It's not. It's high fructose corn syrup, or as we say, diabetes in a bottle. Yes, and that was going to be my second point, is it's not very good. In fact, the word maple appears nowhere no. on the bottle anymore no. because I don't even think there is any. No. Uh, as far as it being racist or having racial overtones, I think until you have a white Aunt Jemima, it is. Uh, huh. And by the way, there's a black Gerber baby now. Well, wait a so, minute. Wait a minute. Do we need a knows. white Michael Jordan, too? Do we need a white what? Jay-Z? No, but my, my Do we need Jemima, a white Beyonce? <laughs> Is we that, got so many a, examples, Bob. There's a, so fictional, <laughs> a fictional marketing character. So right. if you want to have, you know, why can't, you know, uh, uh, my mom could probably make syrup not as good as you, but probably better than most, and she can certainly cook. Why wouldn't somebody like that could be Aunt Jemima? As long as you're using... Uh, so wait a basic, minute. Here's a black person who has a job, albeit as a cartoon, and you're saying it's not good unless we replace that with a white person. I'm just saying it's probably not going to fly super well right now. And it's probably not going to. Every big company has to look at what what can you do right now to try to at least pretend, pretend to make a difference. No, no, no. And, and it, I, the word is pretend. I love it. Yes. <laughs> How about and, intend? And, what at can least, you do to pretend that. you care about racism without actually doing anything about racism? Well, well one thing you can do is every place you see it call it out and try to get rid of it yeah. there's people that still like watching so, amos and andy and so stuff. a team of and, and detectives just, found the aunt jemima, jemima bottle but the police <sighs> okay so after um after this blues singer edith wilson ethel ernestine harper a former school teacher and actress became aunt jemima and the fourth aunt jemima was rosie hall an advertising employee at quaker oats uh, and then they just she discovered they were looking for a new Aunt Jemima. Um, and so uh, she became the most recent Aunt Jemima. By the way, when Rosie Hall passed away, her grave was declared a national historic landmark because she was Aunt Jemima. So if you're following me so far, there's no controversy so far. Right? I would disagree. Okay, what's the controversy? Well, as I said earlier, when you asked, it seems to me that the appropriation of a black woman taking care of a white family could be viewed as insulting. Why was it a white family? Or, or at least, I, I, or, the Antimima bottle never said it was uh, only for white families. No, it did not. But <laughs> let's be honest about when this thing came into the marketplace. Wasn't a lot of African-American families had the means to be consumers of syrup. So you're saying because it was invented in 1890... And the first mascot was a former slave. Ergo, it has to be racist. Well, the 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 depiction of the African American woman as caretaker, caregiver. You know, it's great that they evolved into a paid position. That was a nice twist for American history. 
but still, it's a subservient figure is I think well, could be right. viewed how as insulting. I don't, B, I don't go that how deep. How is Aunt B any different except that she's white? If if if, if Obi <laughs> by and the way, Andy I, if had they Aunt come Jemima out, if, if woman, tomorrow it becomes <laughs> Aunt B's syrup, I think there should be protests in the street. Well, well I think Aunt since B Nancy Green an aunt. She wasn't an aunt, I mean, but she was a yeah, big, was uh, big, chunky, subservient white woman who took care of a white family. Oh, she was subservient to anybody. She told everybody exactly what That's to true. do and when to do it. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Aunt Jemima would have given you a piece of her mind, too. I'm pretty sure, in my fantasy. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not the world's biggest problem, but yes, it's, it's a, it's, it is a... <laughs> It, it, it is one of the many symbols that you know as you as you find them. If, like I said, if you wanted to make it uh, a white person, or if you want to go Uncle Jemima and you put somebody transgender that is you know maybe changed. I mean, if you, I mean, if you want if you want to make it a little more even, you know, then that's one thing. But to uh, uh, to say and but Colonel wait a minute, Sanders, do we have to go through a, all um, uh, all marketing and? make sure that everything's balanced I and mean, we've been through this before we 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 are bob we have been we you're right we have been and we finally got to the the most glaring examples of marketing political incorrectness that there are aunt jemima on uh, Uncle will the washington ben. redskins change their name next week boy they, they there's a push there's, there's a, a push, push by yeah. the mayor of dc saying that it's it's freaking time man yeah, it is time that yeah, one I, need that one i yeah. sort of get because redskins is about your skin and it is about your race and it is you know what i mean it's it's no, it's you. not like a fictional well they do have a character that's their mascot right you bet and that's a fictional um, and, character and you can argue that chiefs or braves is a term of uh uh, appreciation or you know mm. i mean a, a brave is a compliment yeah a chief is a is a, a an element of of achievement i guess or notoriety yeah. right like the colonels or generals yeah all of this has come up of course uh, as it always does when w w people in the media have to fill 24 hours and distract us from the real issues uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't a real issue, is my point. <laughs> well, your, hold on, real, your white privilege is a, showing. You may want to tuck that it, in. Hold it, on. Yeah. It's a real issue if you're a multinational corporation that has a fear of being called out for marketing a product with an ancient slave woman. Ah, I mean, so it, we're protecting <laughs> greed, not ending racism. Thank you for pointing that out. I was actually coming to that. Well, we're, <laughs> Joe, we're, Joe jumped ahead. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I, we're we're ending racism best way we can, and we'll never end it. So we just have to do our best to try to acknowledge it and, and make it better where we can. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I I'm not an Aunt Jemima consumer anyway. I buy your syrup because it's good and it's real. But but uh, I, I do think that the less stereotyping in general of the world the better and i know you might disagree with that because i know there's a lot of comedy and stereotypes but uh i think the the less uh the less uncle ben's and aunt jemima's and, and anything sure that, uh, like i have that, i have an actually better. i have a, a thought out answer to that and it's it's not that i disagree with it it's that i actually believe in humanity intent matters so when that police officer kneeled on that guy's neck, it was clear what his intent was. When people make a bottle of syrup, I don't see racist intent. 
certainly not enough for me to make it a priority. Now, when you explain that the company is freaked out and doesn't want to lose revenue, and in fact, they want to make it look like they're doing something good and maybe make more money, that I get. It what they ought to do is make it Nancy Nancy Green's syrup and pancake mix. That'd be awesome. Give her a real. I mean, name. she was she was the first black millionaire. Love you, Spike. you know that. Empower her. Yeah, Nancy Green's freedom syrup. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Flapjacks from blacks. They won't do that. You know they won't. No, they do won't. That. Yeah, because that would be actually addressing the problem. And we are really the last three guys to really know. I mean, ask some black people. How do they feel? Do they buy Aunt Jemima syrup? And I don't know the answer. But uh, well, uh, so it's, I did. It's, it's easy some... for us to say this is not a big yeah. deal, but you know, we're not black. By so. the way, you know me. I'm obsessive compulsive, and I'm retired. So I did Google it, and I found an article in Yahoo from one decade ago, 2010. Why are black people not protesting Aunt Jemima? (laughs) 2010. So this is something we just discovered. What did they say? Well, it was was actually a blog post. If blacks want to have the audacity to protest the Cambridge police arrest of a Harvard professor, racial beatings, etc., then why don't they protest this product on store shelves that clearly perpetuates this outdated racial stereotype we call Aunt Jemima? Every time a black or white person buys the syrup or pancake mix, they're endorsing racism. Are they? And then he put it out there and a bunch of people answered. I'll give you a few of the answers. Just like Mrs. Butterworth, a made-up name. I love Aunt Jemima pancake syrup. That's the <laughs> anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> Having a bottle of syrup shaped like a black woman doesn't victimize anyone. Calm down. You need to study black history and you'll find that Aunt Jemima was a real person. You'll be surprised on who she was. She wasn't. She wasn't. There was no Aunt Jemima. But they used a real person who was a freed slave. Again, I I saw that as a positive. Yeah, but nobody would have bought Nancy Green syrup. You needed a stereotype. Like Joe said, you need a stereotypical figure of a comfort giver to sell this product. And... Would she be the first celebrity to change their name to make it more marketable? She didn't change her name. The company that bought her company decided the best way to market this was to exploit that that image. Well, again, when it comes to making money in a business, exploit is not necessarily a bad word. Have you ever taken a look at the ads that ran with Aunt Jemima, by the way? No, but I bet that would be fun. as As I've Googled this, the print ads, and I'm, uh, pardon me while I slip into a voice sure. <laughs> to bring an audio life to this ad, okay? All right. Pancake days is happy days. Oh. Only with my magic, oh, and I'm, I'm reading this as it's spelled. Yes. Only with my magic recipe you can you it's spelled with W-I-F? With W-I-F. Wow. That's turn, out this, turn out these tender, delicious, jiffy, quick pancakes that make your family happy. Yeah. That's an ad? That's an ad. Wow. That's an actual Aunt Jemima ad. Pancake days is happy days. Only from with which, my magic recipe. Yeah. From, from the, which from decade? The 30s. Is that recently? From, yeah, the, from 30s. the 30s. Okay, I was gonna say Yeah, and I'm just saying, you know, we, we may have evolved, but when this started, it wasn't a lot of mystery where they were going with this. 
And you know, that's. So I went to YouTube to see if I could uh, find any TV commercials. Ah, here they are, 1955, you ready? Aunt Jemima from 1955. It's chilly outdoors, but inside. Ah. For generations, frosty mornings have seemed warmer with stacks of Aunt Jemima buckwheats. Right, Aunt Jemima buckwheats, deep golden brown with a tantalizing buckwheat tang. It's the same today. Men still need a hearty, nourishing breakfast. Men. And men love Aunt Jemima buckwheats. No buckwheats can equal that famous Aunt Jemima flavor. And they're so easy, easy, easy. Just pour out Damn. Aunt Jemima buckwheat mix from the yellow box. <laughs> then add milk. Serve with crisp brown pork sausage or with ham or bacon. Lots of lucky men can have Aunt Jemima buckwheats tomorrow if they only ask for them. Men, ask That's for your Aunt phone, Jemima Bob. buckwheat pancakes. <laughs> mm, All right, clearly the ad is targeted towards men, but I don't see any racism in that ad. Let me find another one. Hold on, you you want to hear? You want to read oh, the true. print ad for Aunt Jemima buckwheats? I want to. I, I want to hear a TV ad. Okay, hang on. My, my I don't wife even want to get into but. Yep. I don't even want to get into buckwheat. That's a whole nother <laughs> level. Of yeah, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Right. Of course. You've been peeking. For your information, you're looking at a man. Can you tell your wife to let you go for an hour? <laughs> By the way, she's texting, <laughs> and every time a text comes through, it ducks the audio on this. I know. We, oh, we know. We hear How it. How do I turn that off? <laughs> turn your phone off. No, but it, it, I can't play the commercial. Hang on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, your, uh, your pancakes look a little lumpy. That's corn. Corn? In the pancakes? Mm-hmm. Sound good? Mm, they are good. What's the matter? The label too pretty to throw away? Oh, be still. For your information, I'm saving this niblet's label to send in with the Aunt Jemima box top and get back the money I spent for the corn. Try Aunt Jemima's golden corn pancakes. Add one half cup of niblets to your batter. Aunt Jemima will refund the price you pay for the corn. For details, see this ad or check with your grocer. All right. So, yeah, these are just normal ads so far. Look, it's Disneyland. And some wonderful new pancakes have been created in Disneyland's famous Aunt Jemima kitchen. Oh, that's They're right. Aunt Jemima party pancakes. There's eggnog pancakes made with ready-to-serve eggnog. Strawberry Aunt Jemima pancakes. Okay, so there used to actually be a restaurant called Aunt Jemima's Kitchen in Disney. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not. Let's make some. That's easy. So uh, the, the racial um, script uh, I get, but most of, the, most of it's pretty innocuous, guys. Well, not in the copy ads, Bob. All right, read me a <laughs> little more. The buckwheats, in particular, wooey days all shouting for my temptilating down south buckwheats. I mean, it's it's. I read it as it's spelled. Except that D D didn't D you e -Y do O.J. Simpson in that same voice for about five years? D days all shouting, yes. But I was doing a comedy show, not running a um, Madison Avenue ad campaign to white America. And that was the '90s. It would not fly now. Trust again, me. again, none of that would fly now. So. That feels like that's a problem we already solved because that commercial isn't exactly. running now. Exactly. Okay. Again, uh, uh, to me, it's a stunt. It's an advertising stunt. 
And, and to me, until you ask some black people, you won't know. I've never, nobody in my family, no black people have ever eaten Do you picture black families sitting at home going, honey, did you hear the news? Oh, racism is fixed. And I have a go- dream. <laughs> Come on. Oh. One day my children will sit around a breakfast table without Fruit Loops. I'm a black Aunt Jemima. I'm just going off my family and the black people in it. Yeah. Sagra molasses <laughs> is what they eat. They don't eat Aunt Jemima right. syrup. But, and that's what I, I learned to eat and was good. But people with poor diet and diabetes do love Aunt Jemima syrup, and not all of them are white. And I kind of, uh, first of all, and, and what a, destroying a beautiful name. You ever meet a Jemima? Nobody's going to name their kid Jemima because it's a pancake brand. I think it's a beautiful name that doesn't get used enough. And I feel there is a white mascot. It's a good a brand angle, Joe. I like it. There's a You're white liberating brand liberating amb- the name. Yes, and there was a white brand ambassador out there that I really got upset about, that I got teased endlessly about and identified with um, most of my childhood. <laughs> that, uh, so I know, you know I, I'm, I'm not a black woman, but I'm a little, a little paunchy white guy. And apparently I resembled uh, somebody that was on commercials countlessly, and it caused a lot of grief for me. Wow. I know who. Uh, can I guess, Joe? Sure. The Frito Bandito? No. Uh, uh, oh. That was, that, but I, that, we'll talk about another stereotype. I Little Caesars have, Pizza Pizza Guy? No, this was way before Little Caesars. Oh, but you did resemble that. The, the, I'll, I'll <laughs> These tell are you, your friends, you, Joe. This is hard. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a cartoon. It wasn't a human, but it was sold. A, sold it was, it's still, I believe, an iconic brand and, right. and figure. The Pillsbury Doughboy. Oh, <laughs> dude! Come on. When I when I was in high school, they called me PDB, and they came and pushed in on my belly to see if I would wow, squeal because God, I was a awesome. pudgy little guy, and they called me PDB. But you weren't even that plump then. No, I wasn't. But yeah, but I was just enough that uh, yeah. I was called PDB. High school people and, are brutal and teased, and, and this was even like yeah. middle school, probably in elementary. But uh, so I know uh, what it's like to be uh, to be. Now, uh, if Pillsbury had come along and offered you the same deal, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Well, that they offered look- Nancy Green and change oh. your name to the Pillsbury Doughboy and take do a photo shoot with you. You're in. Popping fresh all the way. I love their croissants. Yeah. I mean, but but I don't know. I mean, I would do it from a media standpoint. But, and I joke. I mean, I'm obviously not the Pillsbury Doughboy. But I think any time, and I don't care if it's only one person that's offended. If mm. people are offended, then let's get rid of it best we can. Now, you don't we care if it's only one person? No, not if it's really at somebody's heart is really offending them. If it's something. Okay, but there are it, 7 it, billion opinions on this planet. Right. So how could you both have free speech and give 6.99999 billion vetoes to that free speech? I don't consider it free speech. I consider it best practices is in marketing. If you're 
putting something out there unless your goal is to offend uh, obviously if you're if you're selling you know white robes or something you you know you're not going to particularly care about uh, if there's a certain demographic that's going to be offended but when it comes to food products and stuff i think there's a lot of a lot of ways to market things with having without having to get racial stereotypes yeah, i totally agree involved. with all of that but you said one if one person is offended so any company could shut down another company just by pretending to be offended. I'm not saying it should be the law. I'm saying it should be the best practices of those companies to police themselves, and that's what they're starting to do. If, if when, when Eminem Mars or whoever owns Uncle Ben says, you know, having an old black guy on the rice is probably not that great in the 21st century. Yeah, I see I this as black people being fired from jobs they've held for a long time. Well, black paintings, wow. I don't think, you know. <laughs> Wow. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Never, Before we move on, though. I, I, when I saw I, Aunt Jemima, I only thought of Aunt B. I just thought it was a nice woman who liked to cook. I didn't think of anything else. This whole I racism idea is Go- being introduced yeah. now to me. I, I, I always saw the one from Gone with the Wind. You did you? Yeah. I always saw Hattie. What's her, what's her name? And I apologize for not knowing her name. The first African-American Oscar winner. Right. Hattie and that's McDaniel, interesting. Was, not because Gone with, Gone with the Wind is under fire. And I yeah. do... I mean, I'm from the South, and the Song of the South, you know, that movie that Disney put out about the same time they had the Aunt Jemima Kitchen at Disneyland, I'm sure, uh, yep. that got pulled for racial stereotypes, and now they're after Gone with the Wind, and I kind of take exception to that, because what Gone with the Wind really was was a pretty accurate depiction of the South during the war and then during the right after the war. And, you know, that feels a little bit more like erasing art and erasing history to me. I mean, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Lisa feels that way about the Confederate statues, too. She feels that, hey, it's history. And not all of our history is great history, but we need these museum pieces and we can use them as uh, for education, not like just to decapitate them during you know, times of a, a protest. And I think the, the you said the right word is they need to be museum pieces. We don't need to ignore our history, but we don't need to have them out in the middle of a park either if they bother people. I get back to Again. maybe it doesn't offend you, but if it offends somebody... Put them behind glass in a museum and say, you know, this okay. is the way it was. So when are, people how would were you feel if, the, if Louisiana adopts the Britney Spears audience and all Confederate statues get replaced with Britney Spears in a bikini and bronze? Would that offend you? I would prefer a more noble Louisiana. Not that I have anything against Brittany, but if you're going to start See? honoring people, let's look at Louis Armstrong or somebody like that. If you want to start putting statues up in New Orleans of people other other than the Confederate generals. There's probably already a Louis Armstrong. There is. Yeah. They were just talking about replacing Confederate generals with Brittany. Um, so I don't know if I got to mention this last podcast. We touched on this subject at the end of the last session. Sure. Um, there's a great John Oliver piece about Confederate, the Confederacy and its place in history. Mm. And what he goes on to note is that the majority of, of statues to Confederate heroes were erected in the 1910s and 1920s. And they were uh, also erected in the 1950s and 1960s. Because? And they were in large part erected to remind and um, and and not so subtly tell African-Americans what their place was in this society, in Jim Crow, and then in the, uh, in the lead up to the uh, civil rights movement. Most of these statues are in place to 
oppress and depress African-American culture and African-Americans. And I believe that if that's documented, that, you know, that that's important to know. And watch, uh, but but, but watch that John Oliver piece, because there's a Robert E. Lee quote that he gives at the end of it that says, Robert E. Lee says, we should not keep open the sores of war. There should never be a monument to a Confederate hero. Robert E. Lee said that. Something that has probably been debated for thousands of years amongst people, mankind. And well, and John Oliver being a great comedian, he closes that segment by giving some alternative statues. He oh. mentions, and I forget the name of the guy, and I apologize, but why wouldn't you rather, ha- instead of this general, how about this guy? This guy was a slave who stole a Confederate uh, military boat, sailed to freedom, and then went on to serve four terms in Congress. Wow. And he goes to the next statue. How about this statue? Here's the first African-American woman pilot. You know, he goes, and how about this statue? And he goes, to Florida. And they've got a gator flipping somebody off. This is the perfect encompassment of what Florida stands for. And then he goes, and, so, and <laughs> South nice Carolina. Yeah. South Carolina. And he pulls off the South Carolina thing, and there's Stephen Colbert, the favorite son of South Carolina, who talks about the wonders of South Carolina. Isn't this a better representation of South Carolina than a general of a losing army from a traitorous movement that waged war in its own government? Blah, blah, blah. But it's just so, it's very funny. Yeah, he's and well, awesome. And well, and well researched. Everything he does is uh, very well researched. Okay, I apologize that I'm out of time. It's my fault this week because I'm recording and I'm actually filling in on a morning show in the Boston area. So, uh, but before we go, four more responses. Think of this as like Twitter, although this is 10 years ago before Twitter was big to the piece about why aren't black people protesting Aunt Jemima. And, and by the way, I, I'm completely respectful of differing opinions. I just always try to have one that's a little different myself. So here's Bob Smith. He says, seems like a brand, the brand, is a history of successful black women. Only in the minds of perpetually offended people, mostly white, I imagine, is it racist. Now, Bob is being racist towards whites. <laughs> so ironic. As he says that, right? Uh, that's kind of how I saw it. Only in the minds of perpetually offended people, mostly white, is it racist. Right? Well, look, Oprah Winfrey and Michelle Obama are are brands that reflect the history of successful black women, right. not Aunt Jemima. So... That's awesome. That's, By the way, uh, but all the women who were um, mascots for that were successful. But let me, let me actually, you just gave me an idea. Should Quaker Oats change it to Oprah Winfrey syrup? Or Michelle Aunt Obama Oprah syrup? Aunt Obama? Which one? I, Aunt I, Obama. The, I, I like think it. the Oprah syrup would be tastier. <laughs> well... <laughs> Obama's made out of vegetables, so that wouldn't be any good. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, Michelle wouldn't have anything to do with it. All right. I trust Oprah on food way more than I trust Michelle. Yeah, <laughs> here, here. Uh, question. Uh, maybe, here's the, here's the final uh, comment on this, which I thought was cute. Maybe people will like it better if they change the picture to a white woman and name it Aunt Karen. Well, there's a name's getting dragged through the mud. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sorry for Karens these days. Yeah. I don't know how I'm that became you, that became a de- defamatory word, but it sure is all of a sudden. By the way, the article was ten years old. Most of the comments were ten years old. That comment was eleven hours ago. <laughs> all right, guys, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, and uh, is there any other quick business we need to take care of? We got about two minutes. Well, we yeah, got before tons Joe, of, hold, yeah. hold on, Joe, before you dismiss, before you dismiss your uh, your 
painful childhood of teasing. I'd like to offer a position of spokesperson for, we, we are still trying to put together a pot shop in the O'Neill family. Uh, given the coronavirus and whatnot, things have completely come to a stop. Did as you far say as that. A, a cannabis shop? Is that what you mean? I did say, uh, okay, yep, I yeah. did say a cannabis shop. Um, and I think uh, the Pillsbury Dope Boy would be a tremendous mascot for our <laughs> our store, Joe. And I'm that's and not the gonna, opportunity is yours. That's not going to jive want. with his uh, position as a school teacher. I, I no, that right. would be. Yeah. I yeah. would have a conflict, and I think so would Pillsbury. Probably <laughs> if you if you uh, went that route. No, Spike, but you're the perfect mascot for one of those. Uh, now, would you be a medicinal place or a recreational place? Both, absolutely both. And they are all both in Seattle now, right? Yep, yep. Okay. And we call it Puff and Fresh. What do you think, Joe? Is that good? I'm not, like I said, I'm going to stick to this. <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe. I'm, and I'm we have to, three S words to use up this week, and I'm saving <laughs> mine for next week because I'm. We do have lots of people we should thank, especially okay. from yes. Patreon. Go ahead. Um, Larry Graff, uh, new uh, Patreon, says, Much, much thanks, Bob, Spike, and Joe, for bringing back your unique sense of humor points of view. Your show always brought a smile to my face, made me think a little with emphasis on the little. I was at your final show party, met Lee Oscar, had a nice conversation with Joe's dad. Uh, the highlight was a drunken Jody Brothers before noon on stage. I probably have some video of that party somewhere. <laughs> I believe anyway, she wrote I'm, the song Day Drinking and sold it to a yes. country artist. And I think actually they do get paid to uh, to do that sort of thing in the morning there still. He says, I'm happy to pay a little. He's brand new to our Patreon for the amount of uh, bringing a little joy into our lives. Clark Kamen says, I love the occasional swearing. Makes me feel like talking with your friends or family or coworkers comes from the heart. I also like political talk and current events. A lot of our listeners like political talk, by the way. The ones that don't, don't like hearing things they disagree with. And I maintain that the trick is to not put them down, to offer our thoughts, but not offer them as everybody who disagrees with us is stupid. I think the trick is to not be divisive. None of us have ever done that, Bob, come on. Well, we've done a pretty good job I almost used the S word on you right there. Yeah. Um, Don Reuter, and I agree with this one, says, yeah. keep recruiting Pedro. Uh, then you will have drums, keyboard, vocals, and cowbell. I want to hear some social distancing spike in the Impalers. Honestly, I yes. always enjoy the Impaler shows, especially when the show members are in there. Glad to be able to listen again. Don Reuter. And uh, lots and lots of uh, other letters. Uh, we're getting more and more letters and actually more and more patrons. So That's awesome. Uh, yeah, Appreciate that. Uh, and by the way, working on a twisted tune, I can't get no vaccination. A Rolling Stones parody. Spike, you're going to crush this. We've only got two years to finish it, too, so hurry up. Uh, well, it's 12 to 18 months. <laughs> okay. uh, although warp speed means maybe November 7th, 3rd, 4th. Uh, and speaking of warp speed, did you hear about the Space Force um, copyright kerfuffle? No. Um, <laughs> Netflix went and copywritten or copywrote, whatever the, the term is. Space Force before the U.S. government bothered to. So Netflix owns the term Space Force, yeah. not the newest branch of the U.S. military. But Netflix lawyers know as well as any that you can't fight City Hall. So that'd be interesting. I just thought it was funny happened. that the, yeah. the U.S. government didn't bother to you know. to copyright it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're you know most of the people in the U.S. government are still getting used to the idea that you don't have to shoe a car. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I do want to give a plug to a great thing here. Uh, I think they might have been listening, maybe not, but Black Sabbath is now selling Black Lives Matter shirts. Very uh, nice. Yes, with, I saw with that. With the Black Sabbath logo. So those will be available uh, 25 bucks. All the all the proceeds go to Black Lives Matter. Awesome. They're missing the boat if they don't have a Black Sabbath Matters. I, 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 dig, I dig them getting behind that very worthwhile cause. But I think, I don't know if a Black Sabbath Matter shirt is derogatory to the cause, but I think it's a great joke, Joe. I love that. So I do think t-shirts and um, and veggie wraps and all the things that are happening are, are awesome for the cause, but I do hope we have some legislation that actually has teeth in it uh, that puts people who violate these statutes in, you know, in such a, such a harm's way that they will not do it. Uh, and if and if you do just want to feel a little better about the world, uh, June nineteenth is the day slavery ended, and do something, do something to celebrate that fact that we weren't holding human beings uh, as slaves in this country as of June nineteenth. And yes. if you want to hear a great special, I'm putting together a three hour one on the eighty eight nine thebridge dot org. You can listen to anywhere in the world. It'll be very good. Very nice. All right, rock and roll. Uh, we'll play some classic Bob, Spike, and Joe and a couple of twisted tunes. Bob, Spike, and Joe Everywhere you go You can't escape the trio Coming on with Brio You'll love everything they do They'll be sure to entertain you Bob, Spike, and Joe Everywhere you go So fly, he said, funky comedina.
Dr. John Medina. Dr. John Medina. All right, the guy is the author of The Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. Seattle is increasingly becoming a hub for research into the mysterious part of our bodies, the brain. Dr. John Medina is one of the people at the forefront of understanding the brain as an organ. He's a molecular biologist at the University of Washington. He's the director of Seattle Pacific University's Brain Center for Applied Learning Research. And as I mentioned, he's got this new book, Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. Mike, actually, when pre-interviewing, the doctor said that uh, he was familiar with our show. Is that right? Yeah, I have a little spiel I start to do with the guests, and he cut me right off and says, Oh, I'm, I've been following the Bob River Show since the old days when we were at that other station. Oh, In fact, well, I use your show as a When Brains Go Bad segment <laughs> during my lectures. This is Brains on Drugs. Right. <laughs> Dr. John Medina, welcome to the show. A pleasure to be here. I'm curious, before we get started in the brain, yep. you being such a, you know, a molecular biologist, <laughs> do you also have a spiritual side? Can you meld religion with science, or do you think it's a choice of one or the other? Well, I, I am indeed a religious man. In fact, I'm an evangelical Protestant. Love it. I, I've never seen the ideas come into as much conflict as I have seen the people who promote opposite ideas come into conflict. I actually think it's an extraordinary uh, question to ask, what are our origins, and is there anything that science can either reveal about those origins or remain so silent about that by being silent reveals the contours of a vacuum. I think all of that's really great questions, and I, uh, I wish that there was more lively and less caustic debate between the communities of wow. the religious people and the, and the communities of science. When you look at the brain itself as an organ, has anybody seen any differences in the eastern brain and the western brain? Or, you know, a different race of person would have a little different brain makeup? Or, or is every human on the planet pretty much wired with we the same have, brain? We have the same brain. Good question. Well, yeah, it's a really good question. In fact, we don't have the same brain. Every, in fact, it's one of the brain rules in the book. Every brain is wired differently from every other brain. You have, if you have been exposed to a picture of Jennifer Aniston, you will literally recruit a, a region in your brain, in fact, a specific cell in that region, that will only respond to pictures of Jennifer Aniston and will only respond to those pictures for the rest of your life. It becomes your Jennifer Aniston neuron. <laughs> it becomes the Jennifer Aniston neuron. I'll go you one better. Doc, when I see a picture of Jennifer Aniston, I refer to a totally different brain. <laughs> what, do you study the little brain at all or no? As <laughs> Woody Allen said, the brain is my second favorite organ. How does stress affect the brain? I'm a very stressed out person, so how is that affecting me? Well, the brain rule is stressed brains don't learn the same way as non-stressed brains. And different types of stress, uh, some types of stress are actually good for learning, but there is a type of stress that is deadly for learning. This is the type of stress that we often call learned helplessness. It's the inability to control the aversive stimulus, the horrible thing that's coming at you, both in terms of its frequency, you can't control how many times you get it, and once it arrives at your doorstep, you can't control the depth of the insult that it gives you. When you are feeling increasingly out of control of those uh, uh, variables, you begin to produce a type of stress which can actually hurt cognition in virtually every way human thinking can be measured. Now, if you had to sum all that up in one word, would fear be appropriate or partly appropriate for that? Well, 
I just put it in two words. I'd say stress sucks. <laughs> stress sucks. So now, um, and about the brain, um, as we learn more and more about the brain, do we think that we can ever get a complete handle on how it, I mean, will science ever essentially go, oh yeah, we, we, there's nothing more here, we've got it all figured out, or or is there still a mysterious part of you, you know that movie 21 Gram says that's how much your soul weighs, is there a part of the brain that makes you sentient, and you have to watch Data and Star Trek and wonder this as a molecular uh, you know, biologist and a scientist, sure. what part of you makes you you, and how can that just be a mathematical, chemical, electro, electronic reaction, or is there something, is there something so magic that is just going to be impossible for us to ever figure it out. Well, it's frustrating because at one level, we don't know squat about how the brain works. If I ever knew how uh, we could ever figure out how you picked up a glass of water and drank it every morning, it would represent a major achievement. Uh, so there's a lot of mystery. On the other hand, um, you can toggle aspects of brain development by the application or the subtraction of a single atom. Maybe I could give you an example. There's a drug called phenothiazine. It is a drug that you, it's an old drug, used to be given to uh, patients with schizophrenia. And if you give that to them, it will bind to a receptor in their brain and stop their horrible, full-blown hallucinations. I can, in the molecular laboratory, take that drug and kick out a single carbon atom, just one carbon atom. When I do that in the right place, that drug can no longer bind to the receptor in the, in the schizophrenic patient's brain, and if I give this modified drug to them, nothing happens, and they return to their schizophrenic state with lots of full-blown hallucinations. So I can literally turn on or off this complex human behavior with the presence or absence of a single carbon atom. So, on one hand, I don't know how you get a drink of water. On the other hand, I can toggle certain types of behavior. Welcome to the strange world. Does this make you Frankenstein, uh, not you, but the, the, the study of brain science or messing with the brain medically, does it make us all Frankensteins to, to some degree? Well, I don't think so. I think the brain just is so mysterious and it's so wrapped up in our identity that we tend to not think of it as a physical organ, when in fact it is a physical organ and follows the same rules of chemistry and physics that all other physical organs in our body uh, represent. It's just, I think it's the last frontier where superstition can still reign supreme because it is so mysterious. So you'll hear things like left brain, right brain personalities. You've heard that before. Bob, yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and you've heard of the Mozart effect, maybe, and that we only use 10% of our brain. And, and don't, forget, don't forget feces for brains. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's some rock stars that probably only use 2% of their brain, but right. all of those are, are mythologies. That's all mythology? Like, there isn't a percentage of your of our brain that we use? Yeah, well, you're using your brain all the time. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, electrical activities that are required and that are coordinated. And this left brain, right brain stuff, I've, you, if you hear of left brain personalities being one thing and right brain personalities being another, and that they're isolatable. Certainly, the, the hemispheres of the brain react differently, but it's a little bit like saying, if you think they're just personalities, which side of the boat is responsible for making the boat float, the starboard side or the port side? The answer is, wrong question. Both sides of the boat make the ship float, and it's the same thing with the brain. Both sides make a whole personality. One thing I've been noticing lately, Doc, is a lot of people trying to sell uh, stuff for increased brain power that'll make you think clearer or make you smarter literally like smart drugs yeah. are is there such a thing or is there a smart food is there something you can eat that'll help your brain be clearer and faster 
Well, I think we're only in the beginning stages of understanding exactly what nutrition can do to the brain. You've probably heard of omega-3 fatty acids, yes, for example, and that has supposedly had certain effects. I don't think the literature is very strong. There has been one that has been refuted, and that is you may have heard of Ginkoba and its ability to uh, aid and abet human memory, and that's been shown to be false. Shown false. All right. Uh, you you mentioned, I think, in your book about exercise that uh, the brain, that when you exercise your body, uh, that that's extremely helpful to the brain, even though you don't realize you're working that muscle, too. Yeah, it's surprising that exercise is brain-specific. It isn't just that your cardiovascular system gets better and then all of a sudden you come online. Uh, you could take a, a bunch of 27-year-olds who are munching nachos and eating Xboxes all, or playing Xboxes all day long and put them on an exercise program of aerobic exercise. And you can watch what we call executive function, which is an ability to problem-solve and to regulate your emotions. You use it a lot if you're doing math, for example. You can watch their executive functions climb 80 to 100%, and then you can do a dirty trick. You can remove the exercise, let these Xboxers go back down to their nasty habits, and show in about a week or two that they actually return to their pre-exercise cognitive levels. Wow. So you can turn executive function on and off like a light switch with aerobic exercise. Speaking of functions, I noticed recently a news story that came out that said that multitasking is a myth. And I see among kids today that they can be using MySpace and IMing their friends while they're talking on the cell phone and studying for a test and watching TV. Yep. Are kids becoming more adept at multitasking or is it That's, really a myth? And let me, let me add to that question a little because we seem to think every generation that our brains are better than our parents' brains were. So that it, it, you're asking about multitasking, but uh, even broader if you could answer that. Like, are we evolving? There's some people that suggest that we're beginning to evolve. And my personal opinion is that it took five million years to get a, this brain up to where it is right now. We are not going to be able to uh, uh, do a lot of evolutionary comment with it in our lifetime, even in our generation. So if the question is, uh, are we getting smarter by generation, I'd say the answer is probably not. So my, my brain isn't that much different than George Washington's brain was. And, and it was probably not all that much different than Ramses II's brain, yeah. Ramses II? Yeah. Is he the guy who invented... Uh... Condom. Prophylactics. Smart yeah. 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 <laughs> Hey, Doc, I know. Uh, let me ask you this gender. What, what, we may have forever, uh, for in history, the first female president. Uh, are, are, are male and female brains that different? Yeah, do you, are you a Hillary supporter? You got an opinion on a woman in the White House? Uh, I think it would be wonderful to have a woman in the White House. Is that a better brain to lead uh, a country? No, it's not. It's a different brain. The, uh, the genders are not equally wired the same way. There are some differences that you can see. But the differences are mostly minor, except in one very particular case. And, uh, uh, and I talk about that case in the book, but for the most part, it is, it is essentially the same brain, and it would be wonderful to, from a social perspective, I think, to have a woman in the White House. Right. Is brain power hereditary? Do smart people make smart people? Um, the answer is probably yes. Uh, we haven't talked about the multitasking. Do you, do you want to get to that? At yeah, all? yeah. We got to. You know what, Mike? I don't care if we're, if you don't care. I don't care if we're running a little bit late. You're fascinating, by it. We want to have you in the studio sometime. Oh, thanks, Bob. I have enjoyed your uh, um, your song stuff for a long, long time. It's been fun to watch your parodies. And oh, cool. That's like giving your brain a day off. <laughs> yes, <laughs> listening to this show. I appreciate well, it. I, I see in your show, lots of to be honest, something I think that is very, very interesting about it's it's not the multitasking rule, but it's in, in the chapter. Uh, brains don't pay attention to boring things is the name of the rule. And brains pay attention to three things, and we have touched on all three of those even in this conversation. Number one, you can ask the brain is very concerned, will it eat me, can I eat it? So 
and we're involved in the discussion. <laughs> that's the number one my, brain rule. Yeah, will, will it eat me? Can I eat tops it? Tops on my list. <laughs> and you don't mean that just in the literal sense. You mean is this is this friend or foe? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when we talked about China and we talked about the fact that there's going to be protests, it possibly could be violent. Uh, that's going to be a news story, and it's what we're interested in. Number two. Can I mate with it? Will it mate with me? That's the Jennifer Aniston <laughs> neuron again, right? Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Now, that doesn't apply when I'm when I'm looking at a bicycle or anything. <laughs> Woody Allen's favorite. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> the third thing, though, I think is most interesting, and it's what we were about to get into. I think the third thing that the brain really pays attention to is this: Have I seen it before? If you think you've seen it before, it turns out the brain is a terrific pattern matcher. And if you think you've seen it before, you'll relate to it. I know when I get on radio or television sometimes, people, uh, uh, interviewers have told me they've been scared because I am a scientist. And the reason why is that scientists are often not very good at talking and articulating their research. Uh, one of the reasons why is that we use a vocabulary that other people don't understand and cannot pattern match because they have never seen it before. And you can just watch everybody click off their radios or click off their televisions. So those three things are part of the uh, we don't pay attention to boring things as yeah. a part of a brain. He lost me on that last one. Can we get back to can I mate with it or will it mate with me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, that's a fascinating, you know, I, I got it. In other words, when you're speaking to the masses, and we know this as broadcasters, yeah. that... Um, uh, you know, we have to be inclusive. We have to speak in uh, in terms and um, and and uh, analogies and things that people understand. And in fact, the best thing we can use is an analogy. I've read some stuff about robots yeah. and computers mm -hmm. and futuristic prediction books and articles that say that pattern recognition is how we will teach computers to learn. Is that is, is that that's tied in with your understanding of the brain too, right? Well, I think pattern matching is going to be a big old deal. Uh, if you give somebody a math problem and you and you have their brains under study in a non-invasive imaging, like, a, have you heard of fMRIs before, I assume, for the brain? Uh, that's the new oldie station. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Five million B.C. today. <laughs> it's a machine that gives us the ability to peer into a living brain without invading it at all, uh, it, then take a picture of it in the act of it being itself. Wow. Okay. And uh, you can actually show when, blood, when you're thinking about something, blood flow shifts from one area uh, to the next. And so it's a, that's a very powerful tool. Uh, what you see, if you give somebody a math problem while they're in one of these machines, what you see light up in the areas of the brain is really interesting. There's no math area in the brain. None. We just make up numbers. Square root of 17 is something we make up. Your brain recruits the pattern matching abilities to answer and solve certain mathematical problems. So I've often thought, and the book tries to talk about, if you were to re-engineer a learning environment to take advantage of how our brain naturally responds to things, you might teach math differently, for example. You might say, okay, it's all about pattern matching. Let's do pattern matching, if that's what the brain is telling us. And in fact, some of these uh, seminars and uh, memory seminars and all of these things where people come out, uh, they they all teach uh, pattern matching and creating analogies to things, and that that's how they teach people to uh, sharpen their brains. Interesting. Now back to the sex thing for one more time, just because we are in the media and this is how we sell uh, soap. Um, <laughs> you said that uh, the the second one was, can I mate with it or will it mate with me? And that's a that's really an amazing thing. I, I, when you said that, I thought. You know, it's kind of a curse in a way mm -hmm. that being a, 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 being a mammal, an, a, an organism walking around, that that is a part of who you are. And 
and that it, even through life, like like initially when you're a, you know, when you're a teenager, you go it, it, it wakes up and it goes, can I mate with it? Will it mate with me? And it, it wakes up at puberty, right? Yeah, right. And then and then and then you know for a while it goes pretty good in your twenties, and the answer is like yes, maybe, 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 yes, yes, <laughs> maybe, maybe, and you walk around, and then you know then we become monogamous, and I want to ask you a little bit about monogamy if there's any brain study about that, and then when you're monogamous, it doesn't go away. You just walk around all day, and your brain says, no, nope, 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 nope, nope. like, like a bunch of frogs. Nope, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <laughs> on a pond. Giant Budweiser commercial. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so how does mon- where does does the monogamy something we learned through? Um, uh, you know, how did we learn monogamy? Because initially, it didn't start out that way. Yeah. Well, nobody really knows uh, what the social pairing uh, works, uh, how that works. You can say, I think what is surprising for some people is to really understand how profoundly a survival organ the brain really is. Believe it or not, the brain's not interested in sex per se. It's interested in projecting its genes to the next generation, and since we use sex to do that, it becomes interested in sex. But And it's the whole reason why we respond to threats also is because we want to preserve our bio- biology enough so that we can jump those genes to the next generation. With human beings, uh, Bob, we are really, really weak physically. If you take a look at our hair, and if we didn't have any clothes on, we would our thermal exchange with the environment is really awful. If you take a look at our fingernails, we don't do very well against paper, let alone uh, looking at a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> okay. We have this skeleton that can break really, really quickly. I mean, if we were going to survive, we were going to survive because we would have to grow our fangs in our head, which is what we did. So all of our be- survival instincts come from behavior, and I'm convinced that monogamy at least plays a role in part of that. Because when you get a human female pregnant, before there is any uh, uh, modern medicine thousands of years ago, you were killing off a fairly large percentage of those females at childbirth. The head is really, the human baby's head is really big, the birth canal is really small, there's a lot of ripping and tearing, and you're killing off a, a percentage of those. Scare, you're scaring the bejesus out of right now, Doc. <laughs> Poor Casey. <laughs> well, it makes some sense that after a while, if indeed that's going to be the case, there are going, you're, we are going to have to learn to cooperate as a species because some of the females, lactating females who would normally feed those babies, are actually going to die. And if we are not cooperating as a group, and if we don't have a social structure that would pair us together, that could aid and abet that process, we would probably be doomed. But there are, there are evolutionary biologists who suggest that our social relationships occurred as a survival instinct, and one of those would be pair bonding, monogamy, so that you paid attention to this female if she did make it after she gave birth and can uh, be taken care of until she's back up on, on her feet. Now, they did just round up hundreds of people that practice polygamy. Do you think there might be a little bit of a difference in the way their brain works? And, and it certainly... They don't embrace a lot of the modern things that people that practice traditional monogamy have embraced. Well, if we go back to the brain rule that every brain is wired differently from every other brain, I think what you're looking at in cults like that are pure socialization. They have a large, huge control structure. There are people that are deeply involved in making sure that certain uh, little girls will marry certain men, and so it's very guided. I don't think there's anything genetic about that. It's just it's the same old human brain now unleashed in its social moray. Unleashed. The Brain Unleashed. Your book is called Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving, Thriving at Work, Home, and School. John, let's have you in the studio sometime. Thank you very much. All right. Terrific to meet you guys. The Brain. It's a mysterious organ. 
Plenty of things about the brain scientists have yet to understand, and they'll admit it to you. However, Dr. John Medina knows a lot about the brain. One of a handful of people on the planet who studied the brain extensively. A University of Washington molecular biologist and the director of the Brain Center. <laughs> I wonder what the Brain Center is like. Is there like a room? Do we have Abby Normal? Do we have Frankenbrain? The Brain Center. Uh, the Brain Center for Applied Learning Research is at Seattle Pacific University. Uh, John has written several books. His most recent book is called Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. We had a great conversation with him a few weeks ago when I did find out he was going to be you know, hanging around town. Uh, I thought, well, let's get him in the studio. And here he is. Uh, John Medina, welcome to the uh, show. Thanks for having me back. And it's Dr. John Medina. Oh, just call me John. You know, oh, Funky Cove. Funky Cold Medina. Wow. I hear that all the time. All the time. And uh, now, now uh, uh, people studied all parts of the human body. There seems to be the most money in the Viagra department. How did you choose the brain? Well, I've been interested in the distance between a gene and a behavior for a long, long time. And one of the things that's most interesting is that people will think that the uh, 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 brain works a certain way, and it really doesn't. It works in a very particular and odd fashion, and it was that odd fashion that made me think, this is going to be worth studying. For example, a lot of people think the brain works like a videotape recorder, recording everything that happens, and then a good memory is simply a playback head. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's In not how the brain works. That's not how the brain works. In fact, we don't know how the brain works. If we knew how the brain picked up a glass of water and commanded you to drink it, it would represent a major achievement. But the little we do know, the metaphor I'd have to use would be a food processor. When you're busy looking at me, you're seeing a circle, which is my face and then lines and whatnot. You're busy taking that circle out and extracting it from the image and slamming it into one area of the brain. You're taking the color of my beard. I have a brown, salty beard. And you're taking that color and moving it to another area of the brain. And my hands are now moving. You are literally taking that motion of the hand, extracting it from the hand, and processing the motion in a separate place from the hand. What does the motion mean? What does the face mean? What does the expression mean? I'm, I'm analyzing all of these things in separate parts of the brain. That's right. And what's so fascinating is that you can get a stroke in one of those areas. In fact, there's a very famous woman whose name is Ingrid in the research literature, and she suffers what's called motion blindness. She has a stroke in the area of the brain that processes the existential idea of motion, and she no longer can see motion. She's wow. hazardous when she goes and walks on a sidewalk. I was behind her in traffic yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, wait a minute. What does she see? Yeah, yeah. She sees just a still picture? Well, let's say she tries to cross the street. What happens is that she sees a strobe-like snapshot of cars processively getting bigger and bigger. Oh. But she cannot connect them in terms of motion because the motion sensor's gone off in her brain. Wow. Now, how can you measure that and know that's what she sees without actually looking through her <laughs> eyes? Well, it's fairly complicated, but you can show it in lots of different ways. And one of the one of the easiest, of course, is just self-report. But you can hook her up and take a look at something called an fMRI. You may have heard of that before. Uh, it's an it's a way of it's a non-invasive imaging ability mm -hmm. to look inside the brain and see it in the act of doing what it's doing. So it's easy to tell. Now, can I get in and get? Can I? I'd love to look at my brain. Uh, can Can I just show up and, you know? What would you charge me just to check this stuff out? I mean, you know what I mean? You should have one of these booths at the fair. So people can check their own brain out. No, you have to enroll in a study, and then you have to have something wrong with you. And you have to be Bob. really sick, yeah. So, Bob, what is, your, what is your recent psychiatric disorder, and maybe we can enroll you? Take a pick, pick one you can think of. It's probably Spin the wheel. So uh, you say in your book, 
The brain is a survival organ. It is designed to solve problems related to surviving in an unstable... And, and basically, as I was reading this, I was thinking, the last time I was in a sort of a survival mode, I was in Africa. We were in an area that I knew was going to be scary to me. There were mosquitoes that had malaria, so I had knowledge that a primitive man wouldn't have had about, sure. about dangers and bacteria and viruses. And it was hot. It was unbearably, compared to what I was used to, hot. And so I had yeah. to think about it ahead of time. And my brain went into a kind of a, a, a mode that I've never felt before. Yeah. And I have to tell you something that I've told people uh, from Africa, that I thought it was going to be horrible, but I never felt so alive. Uh, yes, a lot of people report that when they're having mild stress, but they're busy surviving. So there's an one-to-one -one input of, oh, I'm making it. Oh, and I'm making it the next minute and the yeah. next second. And your brain will reward you for that. But the brain is not interested in perceiving reality. It's interested in surviving. And if perceptions of reality can serve the survival in inputs, then the brain will allow you to see reality. But if it doesn't see survival modes, it won't necessarily give you reality. And there's a very famous example. Have you seen the... Uh, the white team and the black team, white shirts, black shirts, playing basketball, and a gorilla walks through. Have you seen this before? Uh -uh. You ought to see it on YouTube. What happens is this. I will put it in front of you, Bob, and I'll say, here's a, a black team and a white team t-shirts. Count the number of times they throw the basketball back and forth to each other. Halfway through that 30-second interval, a gorilla walks by, or a guy in a gorilla suit. I will then Convinc off. Convincing gorilla suit or Bud Light commercial gorilla uh, well, suit? More like those really bad Sasquatch suits. Okay, okay. It so like. it's a distraction yeah, yeah, more than an actual fear. And I will ask you, if you're busy counting, I will ask you, Bob, did you see anything weird? And if there's a thousand Bobs in the room, there's even, not even any standard deviations here. Nobody sees the gorilla. Nobody sees the gorilla. Until they pass him the ball and he slam dunks on the white guy. <laughs> Yeah. In fact, people, when they sell, when you say that, hey, there was a gorilla there, they'll say, nah, wait, and they try and slow it down. Then so you can make me, there. you can make me not see a gorilla if yeah. you give me a, a, a diversionary task. That's right. Well, when the brain is processing all this information, a gorilla is not supposed to be there. Okay, it's not supposed to be there. So what happens? You can show that the the photons bouncing off the gorilla suit enter your eye. You get photic exposure, but somewhere along the line, like Photoshop from hell inside your brain your brain will literally extract the gorilla from the visual input, and you won't see it because it's not supposed to be there. Now, is that because the color's black and white, and the gorilla is that? I mean, if it were a red and a blue team, would he stand out more? Or? It's more just the ability to distract. If you're busy counting the basketball back and forth... This is what a magician does, an illusionist. Well, it also drives lawyers nuts at crime scenes. Because if something is not supposed to be there, somebody will literally not see it. And then they'll get on the stand, and they'll say, you're lying. And they'll say, no, I didn't see it. And the brain literally didn't right. do it. So uh, you also say that multitasking is a myth. Research shows your error rate goes up 50%, and it takes you twice as long to do things. And yet we have this sort of feeling, and we talked about this last time, that we're all evolved. We've evolved into these multitasking, uh, Blackberry, uh, text message, 18 different things, drive, put makeup on, eat, yeah. eat French fries all at the same time. Right. We're fooling ourselves. That's right. You, you only time slice. There's no such thing as multitask, simultaneous movement at what's called the attentional spotlight. We have to back that up a little bit because at one level you do multitask. Right now you're looking at me and you're also guiding your heart rate. And you may be thinking about the time that's coming in about five minutes and you're moving back and forth. 
if you're Horowitz and you're busy playing the piano, two uh, two hands are working, doing different things so, yes, simultaneously. simultaneously. And so, I'm thinking about this is, I have to pay attention to your answer so I can be absorbing it. Yeah, At the same yeah. time, I have to be thinking of my next question, which is hard for a lot of people uh, can't do that. Well, what's true about that, when we start talking like this, or if you were in front of a group of people, Bob, and you were teaching them, that's what we call the attentional spotlight. And when you're trying to get somebody not to click the remote from a television to keep them compelled, that's the attentional spotlight. And that thing, that gadget, there's multiple attentional gadgets in the brain, but that gadget cannot multitask. It's the same one where you really see this, and let's get the phones to light up, is if you're driving and you're trying to talk on a cell phone. That area of the attentional spotlight is the thing that gets engaged. And you can show... Okay, no, now I'm confused. So, and I love the cell phone analogy because a whole bunch of people are listening right now. Yeah. They've got their cell phones with them. They talk all the time. They sort of have a, a sense that it's dangerous. Are you saying that this spotlight allows us to multitask on one thing and like driving and do it okay and still have a conversation with, about what we're going to pick up on the cell? So we can multitask that way. Well, sort of, but let's put, let's let's put the task where you're actually trying to drive and talk on the cell phone at the same time. Forget about the heart regulation and all the rest of the okay. stuff that's going on. Okay, just the attentional spotlight. What you can show there's an area in the brain called Broadman area tense right here on the forehead, and you can think of it as mother. If you are there's a part of your brain that you call mother. I, I love call, that. I call okay. it mother. Okay. And every time, let's let's Does say you call you Norman. No, what you might call me. The guy who studies the brain has to have some weird stuff about him. We want to find out. Uh, I call me Sigourney Weaver. Like. Okay. The, uh, the what happens is this: you have uh, uh, every time if you're say at work and you're busy typing away on an email and the phone rings. In order for you to leave the uh, 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 your email and go to the phone, you have to consult mother. Broadman area ten. Ah. Oh. And then mother says, "Okay, you can switch. Answer your phone. You find <laughs> the subroutines, and then you go and answer your phone." That oh. is so right. Now, what happens <laughs> is right, this. I, I, I want you to, more about mother because we do have to take a break.